Hello, British Scandal listeners. It's Matt here. Now, you may have recently enjoyed our series about Boris Johnson. In it, we delved into the strange alchemy of why British politics allows narcissists to thrive. So we thought, what better time to revisit someone that feels very much like the blueprint for Boris, Geoffrey Archer. And there are quite a few parallels. They're both charismatic, ambitious men who just so happen to also be compulsive liars. Now, I know that applies to most British scandal protagonists, but I do think we can learn a lot about why Boris succeeded by understanding Archer's story. Geoffrey Archer climbed the ranks of the Conservative Party in the 80s and made a fortune writing novels. Like Boris, he was a crossover character, a personality politician famous beyond Westminster. The series follows the story of Archer's ruthless ambition and the web of lies he weaves that ultimately leads to his very messy downfall. It may be hard to believe in an era when political scandals seem to emerge by the day, but this was the single biggest political scandal of the era. Spanning three decades, this is the ultimate story of sex, power and money, and what happens when you lie to keep all three. Anyway, here it is. Hope you enjoy. An epic matchup between your two favourite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge... Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Alice, if I was to ask you to name a famous Jeffrey, who would you go for? Mm. Okay, uh, Goldblum, obviously Jeff to Friends, uh, maybe the character from the now defunct kids TV show Rainbow and the giraffe from Toys R Us. Given that this is British Scandal, do you think that any of those three are likely to feature in a series? Yes. Fair point. The prices at Toys R Us were a disgrace in the 80s. Amen. It's 12.45am, the 9th of September 1986, the Albion Hotel, London. Geoffrey Archer stumbles off the grubby bed grabs his shirt and trousers, dresses quickly. The room is tiny, lit by a single low-watt bulb. It's foggy with cigarette smoke. Paint flakes off the mouldy walls. Remind me to never stay at the Albion. He buttons up his shirt, looks in the mirror above the broken sink. He's 46 years old with small eyes, a wide flat mouth and brown crew-cut hair. He's average height, slightly built. Nothing about him looks remarkable. But Geoffrey Archer's face is one of the most famous in the country. He's deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. He's also a best-selling novelist. His photo smiles out from the covers on all his books. In the next few minutes, he needs to get out of this hotel without anyone seeing him. He picks up his jacket, grabs his car keys from a bowl of condoms. Oh, you see now, I have a bowl next to my front door where I put my keys so I don't misplace them. This feels like something a bit different. Oddly, I have a bowl of condoms by the front door so that I don't misplace them. (laughs) He creeps out of the room, chin tucked low. A few hours ago, he was having dinner in Le Caprice, an exclusive Art Deco restaurant in Mayfair. It's one of his favourite places to do business and to be seen. Most of Le Caprice's clients already knew him. The rest were eager to meet him. He'd enjoyed it. He'd worked his way round the tables, shaking hands, chatting and joking. But now he edges down a back staircase, his eyes firmly on the floor. The Albion is busy tonight. 
Men are knocking on doors or trying to sneak out themselves. It's a business hotel. Yeah, one of those sorts of places. Outside, he gulps in air, looks around. The street's empty. He lets his head tip back in relief. He's just grateful nobody saw him coming out of that seedy hotel. He crosses the road to his Jaguar. He looks up. A good-looking man in a suit grins down. It's Aziz Kurtha, a barrister and television presenter, and the biggest gossip he knows. Oh, no. His heart drops to his stomach. Everything he's worked for is now under threat. His career, his marriage, his mission to be prime minister. Because if Aziz Kurtha talks, he's finished. From Wondery, I'm Alice Levine. And I'm Matt Ford. And this is British Scandal. The show where we bring you the murkiest stories that ever happened on these odd little aisles. British scandals come in many shapes and sizes. Some are about money, some are about sex. They're all about power. But when we look at scandals a little bit closer, they turn out to be stranger, wilder and just plain weirder than we remember. So we're journeying back to ask who's to blame for what happened. And when the dust settled, did anything really change? Alice, what do I like more than anything else in the world? Oh, OK, open brief. Um, uh, you, what do you like? Um, red trainers, you love. You, the, those check shirts you can't get enough of. Um, bottled water, you love your phone. You love those pens. You're just saying what I'm wearing and what's around me. What am I into? Oh, OK, yeah. Um, you love your music. All those bands you love. You love to drink. Come on! It. Okay. Um, what topic am I really interested? We talk about all the time. Yeah, yeah, we're both from Nottingham. We talk about that. I've got a podcast about it. What's it called? Big Matt Show. <laughs> you don't know me at all. I do. You crazy cat. One more go. What big thing am I always talking about? The Kardashians. Politics. Yes, I was. I was joking. Politics, you love it. I do love it. And I have a juicy political scandal for you for this series. A juicy political scandal to end all juicy political scandals. If you think the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is an amoral, power-hungry narcissist, wait until you meet Geoffrey Archer. Archer, OK, I get it now. I'm excited. And I will listen to The Big Match Show because it sounds great. 19 years earlier, 1965, Oxford. Geoffrey Archer straightens his tie and walks into the party. At 25, he's a few years older than most of the other students here. But he looks like he belongs to another generation. He's the only man here who doesn't have long hair. He tugs at his sports blazer, adjusts his collar. His hands are sweating. But he's not going to let his nerves stop him. He scans the room looking for Mary Whedon. He's going to ask her out on a date... She's already turned him down twice. I've already got a boyfriend. He's not giving up. He's written to her boyfriend asking his permission to take her out. What are you talking about? It's an odd tactic, isn't it? Odd? It's downright psychotic. He wants Mary to know he's playing by gentleman's rules. But he hasn't had a reply, so he's going ahead anyway. This is utterly bizarre. A few minutes later, he spots her at the back of the room. Her large brown eyes look out from under a big floppy hat. She looks radiant in a flower print dress, and she's surrounded by men desperate to get her attention. Geoffrey pushes his way over. 
but he's shorter than most of the men here. They crowd him out. He's sick of these students. They always ask about his A-levels, and he hasn't got any. He's only got three O-levels. He's had to lie to get here. Oh, Jeff, you naughty boy. Yes, there's very much the first light to flash on the dashboard. Uh, Michael Crick alleges that he gave false academic qualifications to get on the course. Red flag. He pushes to the front of the group, introduces himself to the other men who surround her. Mary is the most beautiful woman in the whole of Oxford, and the smartest. He's going to show everyone here what he's made of. He's going to marry her. And what sports do you lot do? The group goes quiet. One of them says, We don't do sports. Geoffrey grins. Tells them he's just won his second athletics blue. They should come along and join the athletics team. He's club secretary this year. He'll give them a tryout, if they're any good, that is. Someone puts Ticket to Ride on the record player. He tells the group he met the Beatles a few years ago. I got them involved in an Oxfam fundraiser, raised a million pounds. Why do I have the very real feeling that these might be slightly embellished claims? You cynic. He glances at Mary. She looks impressed. A million? All by yourself? He smiles at her. He only raised a fraction of it. There it is. He'd hijacked the Beatles on their way out of a concert, got them to pose with him for the college paper. It got into the tabloids. Donations to Oxfam had shot up. He talks about the Beatles now like they're his friends. He asks Mary if she wants to dance. She takes his hand. The men in the group look annoyed and a little bit impressed. Next day, he takes her to see Dr No. Then to a restaurant. They eat sausage and chips. He tells her he's going to do three things with his life. I'm going to make a million before I'm 30. I'm going to win a silver medal at the next Olympics. And I'm going to be Prime Minister. Oh, this is just our bread and butter at British Scandal, isn't it? Another man with a gigantic ego and ambition. I think he had bread and butter with his sausage and chips. <laughs> You've got to make a butty. He watches Mary laugh. Then he says, why don't you marry me? Then you can see if I do it all. The next night, he takes her to a dance, then to a concert, sends her gifts and flowers, buys a 1924 Morris and takes her on day trips. The following July, he holds her hand at the altar of the University Church in Oxford. Oh my God, they held hands. I now pronounce you man and wife. He lifts Mary's veil and kisses her. He tells her he's the proudest man in the world and he promises he'll make her the proudest wife ever. Six years later, July 1971, the post office tower restaurant, London. Mary slips off her satin jacket and sits on the chair the waiter holds for her. It's definitely 1971. She should be at home preparing her classes. She's got a full day of lectures tomorrow. But Jeffrey's persuaded her to help him network. If I'm going to get anywhere in the party, I'll need some serious allies. How about dinner with the education secretary? Early call, but I think he might be a nightmare. Again, these aren't the most romantic gestures, are they? Darling, for our anniversary, I've booked something really special. The committee room under the commons. We're going to meet the shadow environment secretary. <laughs> She's been to a lot of functions in the two years since Geoffrey was elected as an MP. Most of them boring. She'd rather talk about chemistry than politics. And she hates small talk. But she knows how important it is for him to make contacts. Top three elements in the periodic table... Ooh, got to be oxygen. Got to be. Without it, I wouldn't be able to tell you about what my favourite elements are. 
Actually, chemistry chat's not that bad, is it? <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> From their window table, she looks down on the whole of London. As the restaurant slowly revolves, she can see different streets every few minutes. I've never liked the idea of this restaurant. I mean, I feel gippy on a bus. I don't need my restaurant to be swirling round. It'd be like trying to eat your dinner on a waltzer. Not having it. She sips her orange-garnished cocktail and hopes she can get through tonight without yawning too much. Or spewing. A few seconds later, Geoffrey springs to his feet. Mrs Thatcher, I'd like you to meet my wife, Mary. Oh, sure. I've heard of her. She looks up at a middle-aged woman dressed in a two-piece suit with pearls and bouffant hair. Margaret Thatcher introduces her husband, Dennis, a small balding man with large glasses. Twenty minutes later, Mary picks around her prawn cocktail in its thick pink sauce. Geoffrey is desperately trying to impress Thatcher by talking about education policies. But Thatcher's bored. She challenges everything he says. She's irritated with him. The table falls silent for a minute... Then Dennis turns to Mary. What do you do, Mary, while Geoffrey's out changing the world? She smiles. I teach chemistry at St Hilda's College in Oxford. I've done that since my PhD. Margaret Thatcher's eyes light up. A fellow Oxford chemist? She leans forward. What branch of chemistry exactly? For the rest of the entree, Mary tells Margaret about her research in heterogeneous catalysis. That is so weird. That is literally what we were talking about over coffee this morning. Mary then listens intently as Thatcher talks about her own time as a research chemist, how it's informed her work now as education secretary. By the time the sautéed beef medallions in peppered butter arrive, Mary and Margaret are chatting happily about the Oxford teaching staff they had in common. Just a couple of good-time gals and a couple of beef medallions. On the drive home, Geoffrey talks non-stop about what a success the whole evening was. She wants to meet us again. She really likes you. Mary gazes out of the window and smiles to herself. It's the first time she hasn't had to hide her own brilliance to help his career. She can use her intellect to help him. And from now on, that's exactly what she's going to do. What a perfect application for her incredible smarts. January 1973. Geoffrey Archer's office, the Houses of Parliament, London. Geoffrey paces the floor in his oak-panelled office. He needs to start work but he can't concentrate. He spent all morning waiting for three Canadian businessmen. Is this the start of a joke? Three Canadian businessmen walk into an oak-panelled office in the House of Parliament. (laughs) They were meant to meet him for a late breakfast in a restaurant a few streets from here. But they left him a message saying they were delayed. He sits at his heavy wooden desk and thumbs through the letters from his constituents. His eyes drift down to the brown baker-like clock on the wall. He rings the Canadians again, but there's no answer. Being an MP has made him realise if he wants to fit into this place, into this party, he needs money. And this deal with the Canadians was supposed to be his big ticket. He looks up at a thin-faced man wearing an ill-fitting suit. The man holds his hat in his hands. Mr Archer, wondered if I could have a word, sir. Geoffrey hasn't got time for this. Make an appointment with my secretary. The man tells him this won't wait. He holds up his police ID. Uh Uh-oh. Geoffrey leans back and frowns. The officer sits down, slides three photographs across the desk. Which do you prefer for my ID? I like the slightly smiley one, but also the one with the furrowed brow is kind of brooding. Do you recognise any of these men, sir? Geoffrey stares in horror at the faces of the three Aquablast execs he was meant to meet this morning. Why are you asking about them? The officer fixes him with sharp eyes. They're con men. 
They've been duping innocent investors to buy shares in a company called Aquablast. Trouble is, it doesn't exist. He taps at one of the photos. This man, Manny the Snake Silverman. We've been after him for years. There's an Interpol warrant out for his arrest. You don't go into business with someone called Manny the Snake Silverman. That is your first clue. Jeffrey feels his chest tighten. The policeman's still talking, but all Jeffrey can hear is the sound of his own blood pounding in his ears. He blurts out, Will I get my money back? The officer asks how much he invested. Jeffrey hears his own thin voice say, £400,000. It's not even mine. I borrowed it from the banks and from my friend Anthony Bamford. I have to pay him back. I will get this money back, won't I? My perspective is now warped because in British scandal protagonist terms, that's pocket change. It is, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that Archer, a Tory MP of the time, moving in wealthy circles, came from a wealthy family, but he didn't. There's no family money to back him up at all, and that partly is why he's such a striver and has this drive to earn cash. The officer looks at him with pity. Just let me know if you hear from any of these three again, Mr Archer. He stares for a few seconds at the wall in front of him. He's lost everything. He's completely broke. Worse than that, he's in serious debt. And Mary doesn't know anything about it. Is it too late for Mary to get out of this? Friday the 17th of May 1974. The Boltons, South Kensington, London. Mary stands in the middle of her big Victorian kitchen and wipes her hands on her apron. She loves this house with its high ceilings and large sash windows. Not just because it's one of London's most exclusive streets. It's the first place that feels like home. She opens the oven and takes out the cakes for her son's party. William's two years old today and she wants it to be perfect. The trouble is, at seven months pregnant, she's exhausted. Her feet are swollen, her back aches, and she hasn't slept properly for weeks. Work has also been non-stop. She's just set up the UK branch of the International Solar Energy Society. And now she's looking forward to maternity leave. They've just hired a live-in nanny. The first thing she's going to do is hand the baby over and get some sleep. Just pass her back when she's 18. She's making jelly when her guests arrive. A few seconds later, her kitchen is full of mums sipping tea while the kids play. The mums gaze around the big, comfortable kitchen. This is such a beautiful house, Mary. What's the name of your interior designer? She's about to answer when she sees Geoffrey standing in the doorway. He looks ill. I'll be back in a minute. She grabs him by the arm, takes him to the living room. He sits down, puts his head in his hands. It's bad news, Mary. I bought chairs in a company, but it didn't exist. We've lost all our money. I'll have to resign as an MP. She cuts him short. How much money? He blinks through his tears. £427,000. Oh my God, I didn't know about the 27000 Her legs give. Will we lose the house? Mary, do you want me to put the candles on William's key? We can't afford the candles! <laughs> she opens the door, forces a smile. I'll do it. She grins her way through the rest of the afternoon but all she can think about are the years of debt ahead. When the party's over, she runs to the bedroom and cries herself to sleep. She wakes in the night, feels the baby kick. She's got a few weeks yet before it's here. But she's already decided. She's not going to lose everything. She's going to keep working. If Geoffrey can't support this family financially, she will.
If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. August 1974, the Boltons, South Kensington. Mary slips out of her coat, kicks off her shoes. Her feet are killing her. She's got jet lag from the flight and a headache. She wants a hot bath and a long sleep, but she can't relax yet. She's got student papers to mark for tomorrow. She's been working for a few minutes when Geoffrey comes in. He hands her a bunch of papers. He clears his throat. throat) It's my novel. I'd like you to read it. She can feel her scalp prickle with irritation. She's sick of his money-making schemes. Since he's resigned as an MP, he's had one mad scheme after another. Last month, he tried to bring Elvis Presley to Britain. While she was touring Canada giving lectures, he'd flown to the States to have lunch with Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. But it had fallen through. Elvis refused to visit a country that didn't even have a McDonald's. The only money he's brought in recently is from selling his white Daimler. And now, after a gruelling week and an exhausting flight, he wants her to read his bloody novel. Has that offer ever filled anybody particularly a spouse with joy. I've written a novel, I want you to read it. I mean, you're assuming it's going to be shit, aren't you? Yeah, good books are written by people you don't know. I've got work to do, Geoffrey. One of us has to keep the bailiffs away. For the next hour, she marks papers, ignores his handwritten scribble. Oh my God, it's handwritten as well. Give me a break. Do you know, by the way, Archer's technique for writing a book, he says, is just he starts writing and sees where the pen takes him. There's something incredibly obnoxious about that. But her eyes keep wandering back to it. She picks it up, thumbs through. It won't hurt to read a few pages. She's written some fiction herself. A few years ago, she won a BBC short story competition. Yes, but you're a woman, Mary. It's different. Geoffrey's always been impressed by that. She's curious to see what he's written. So she starts to read. It's a story of four men who get caught up in a share scam. They're swindled out of a million dollars. It pulls her in. It's like a film script. She grabs her pen and starts making notes in the margins. A few hours later, she hands it back to him. It's good. I liked it. Oh, God, put that quote on the cover. He'll need a publisher and an agent. 
she tells him to ring all their contacts. Try David Owen's wife, Deborah. She's a literary agent. A month later, she gets a call at work. It's Geoffrey. He's booked a table in Mayfair. She sits in the restaurant and sips a glass of champagne. He grins at her. We've done it. Not a penny more is going to be published. Oh, God, it's actually good. I have to confess at this point, I've read it. And I do really like it. It's a very good book. Is it? Yeah, so sad to admit it. I've actually got a few of his books and I enjoyed every single one. It's really important for full transparency that you tell us how many. It's all of them, isn't it? And they're all signed. I would say I've probably got more than ten. OK, we have a super fan on our hands. <laughs> he tells Mary he's got a $12,000 advance. He's going to tour the UK promoting his book. And he's determined to conquer the US market. It's not anywhere near enough to cover their debts. But her mind goes back to his promise on their first date. How he'd be a millionaire. Who knows, she thinks. So she raises a glass to him and toasts. Here's to your first million. Five years later, September 1979, a central London bookshop. Geoffrey makes his way through the crowd. It's the launch party of his third novel, Cain and Abel, a story of two men who are bitter rivals. Pre-sales are through the roof. He's due to read a few chapters now before he signs copies. Come on then, have you read this one? I have, and the sequel, The Prodigal Daughter. Oh my God, I don't know if we can have you do this story. He also wrote a book called The Fourth Estate, which is basically about Maxwell and Murdoch slugging it out for the news of the world. It's also very good. To be clear, do you work for Archer? No. You just stan him? (laughs) Everybody in the room wants to chat with him, but he just wants to find Mary. She'd promised to be there for the speeches. He wants to tell everyone how his brilliant wife pushed him to get published with his first novel. But she's nowhere to be seen. She'd been upset with him in the car on the way there. He can't understand it. He's already paid off their debts and bought a large family home in Cambridge for her and the boys. The old vicarage in Grantchester is famous. It's where the poet Rupert Brooke used to live. Mary loves it. He's also got himself a penthouse on the banks of the Thames opposite the Houses of Parliament. And everyone says this new novel is his masterpiece. That's the most important bit. Eventually, he spots Mary talking to his publisher. He heads over. I've been looking for you everywhere. He takes her hand, leads her to the front of the crowd, but she stops him. Not until you promise to stop seeing that woman. Oh. His shoulders drop. He looks at his wife. She looks defiant and upset at the same time. He thought he'd managed to keep his affair with Andrina Cahoon quiet. He whispers, Please, Mary, let's not do this now. But she stares at him coldly. I want you to stop seeing her. Isn't the correct answer to that, no matter what's going on in your mind? Yes, of course. Yeah, or at least, yeah, 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 fine, but... (laughs) Her eyes have filled with tears. Promise me. Before the boys find out, before the papers find out, promise me you'll end it. He nods. Okay, I'll tell her it's all over. He holds her hand as his publisher announces him as... The new Charles Dickens. A few hours later, they pull up outside the old vicarage. He watches Mary get out of the car. He doesn't follow. He tells her, I'll talk to Andy tonight. Get it over with. But as he drives away, he's already decided. He isn't going to give Andy up. He's just going to have to work a lot harder to keep her secret. Yep, I made a bet with myself and I just won. He's as rotten as I thought. Friday the 21st of September 1984. Winter Gardens, Cleethorpes. 
Jeffrey tugs at the hem of his navy blazer, grabs a microphone, strides onto the stage. He looks out at endless rows of round tables. Young waitresses dash from one to the other, serving peach melba and filling wine glasses. All 320 tickets for the Conservative Party fundraising lunch sold in days. The menus are bound in the covers of his novels. And now all eyes are on him. Why is he so shy? He's working hard to show Prime Minister Thatcher that he's a serious player. That he's not the failed politician she knew from the early 70s. He's made huge donations to the party, but this is the kind of work that really impresses her. He picks a raffle ticket from a champagne bucket, hands over a bottle of sweet German wine and signed copies of his own novels to a rosy-cheeked woman. He's been out of politics for almost 10 years now. Writing novels has made him rich, but it bores him. His new novel is first among equals. Yes, I've read it. (laughs) I just assume now. It's about four men who want to become prime minister. The truth is, that's what he wants himself. No way. It's quite a thinly veiled autobiographical bent, isn't it? Yes. First book about a scam. Third book about people wanting to be prime minister. It's a very different life to mine. If I was writing books, it'd be the bloke who can't get through to British Gas, the guy who took his recycling out. And I have to say, I would read them. I have to say that because I work with you. In reality, I obviously wouldn't. Funny you mention that, actually. I've got got a transcript here, if you wouldn't mind. Gosh, it's a very big book. Yeah. 700 pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In point eight font size. Let's fit it all in. Archer taps the microphone and launches into the story he's been telling everywhere. How, ten years ago, he was on the brink of financial disaster. I owed exactly £427,727. How long would it have taken me to pay that off on an MP's wage? Before anyone can shout an answer, he tells them, 142 years. Lucky for me, my first novel sold over a million copies. (laughs) He lets the microphone drop for a couple of seconds as he paces the stage. Oh no, don't do that. Then he tells the crowd, Being in debt was tough, but I didn't rely on handouts. I solved my own problems, all by myself. The true conservative way. The only way this country can be great again. Well, also, your wife worked really hard and made sure that there was food on the table and that you could look after the kids. But yeah, all on your own. He asks people if they've had a good time. Everyone says yes. In that case, please do me a small favour. Write to our marvellous Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher, and tell her what a wonderful time we've had together. Can you imagine all of that mail that she doesn't want? That's like at the end of a gig, and I'll please tweet about it. Not that I would ever do that. I mean, it's like us at the end of this, saying please fill in the survey and give us a five-star rating. Give us a five, guys. As he leaves the stage, someone tells him he's got a call. He checks his watch. It'll be from Andy. She's waiting in their hotel room. He's taking her out tonight to celebrate five years together. Five years! But when he picks up the receiver, he hears Margaret Thatcher's voice. He straightens to attention. This is the call he's been waiting for. Hard work deserves reward, Geoffrey. How does Deputy Chairman of the Party sound? He's delighted. He tells her how honoured he is how hard he worked for the party. She cuts in. She's happy to give him the post, but on one condition. Get rid of your mistress. Imagine being told by Maggie Thatcher to stop shagging around. You should have said it like that. Stop shagging around, Geoffrey. <laughs> September the 25th, 1986, Grandchester, Cambridgeshire. Geoffrey grabs a champagne bottle from an ice-filled bucket. He hops from guest to guest. Chats as he fills their glasses. 
He spent weeks planning every last detail of this garden party. We'll have the slippy slide there. We'll probably have, yeah, top right, we'll go swing ball and then just have a bucket of super soakers. He's even finally dumped Andy. But he can't enjoy it. Not until his guest of honour arrives. Last month, Margaret Thatcher told him how pleased she was with his work as deputy chairman. He's been touring the constituencies, feeding information back to her. And now she's coming to his garden party. It's proof he's now part of her trusted inner circle. But she's late. She's a busy woman. He glances across at Mary. He told her he'd got rid of Andy for her. Well, for Thatcher. Their relationship is more solid now. He just hopes it's solid enough to convince Margaret Thatcher he's totally trustworthy. I mean, Andy is just collateral damage in all of this, isn't she? A few minutes later, a black Daimler sweeps into the drive. The other guests fall silent. Margaret emerges with her husband, Dennis. Geoffrey dashes over to greet them. Welcome, welcome. He leaves Mary talking to Dennis, takes Margaret on a tour of the house. He wants her to see that he's a solid, respectable family man. If you're that worried about it, if that's your main aim, maybe just be a solid, respectable family man. Yeah, surely the fact that you've had a five-year affair is always going to linger as a doubt. He guides Thatcher over to an antique walnut table. I bought this for Mary for our 20th wedding anniversary. Thatcher smiles, tells him in a low voice how pleased she is he put his indiscretion with that other woman behind him. He reassures her. That whole business, it was a mistake. I'd never look at another woman, not now. She nods, tells him to come visit her at number 10 for afternoon tea. And bring Mary with you. Irrespective of the fact that she's Prime Minister, there's something really embarrassing about your boss constantly bringing up the fact that you've had an extramarital affair. That night, Mary hands him a tumbler of whiskey. Her eyes shine. She talks about how well the party went, how excited she is to be invited to number 10. She kisses him. I'm so proud of you. Don't stay up late. When she's gone, he leans back. For the first time in years, he can see a clear path to power. Now he's under Thatcher's wing, he's certain to be the next party chairman. From there, he'll work towards party leader. He's popular enough with grassroots members. No one has the range of support in the party like he does. He picks up the receiver. At first, he doesn't recognise the voice. A woman tells him her name is Debbie, that she's a prostitute, that she works from a room in the Albion Hotel near Victoria Station and that he had sex with her there a few days ago. Does he remember? Um, oh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, can you be a little, a little bit more specific? Yeah, I just had a bit of a busy week. Oh, my mind's gone for long. If it's Wednesday afternoon... His mouth goes dry. You've got the wrong number. He gulps down the whiskey. He's cold and shaking. He knows exactly who Debbie is. And right now, she's the only woman in the world who can destroy him. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A few weeks later, 1.30am on the 25th of October 1986, Grandchester, Geoffrey grips the telephone. My instinct tells me a phone call at 1.30am in a British scandal story, not good news. Or any phone call to Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> Get rid of your phone, Jeff. He rubs at his forehead. He's had a permanent headache for days now. He's on the phone to Debbie. He's found out that her real name is Monica Coughlin. He's been talking to her late at night for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, that's the way to deal with it. He needs to keep his calls secret. The last thing he wants is for Mary or the party to find out he's been talking to a prostitute. Monica tells him she's scared. After you left my room, you bumped into one of my regulars, Mr Curther. Oh, that's um, Gossip Monger of the Year 1986, right? Yes, the guy Archer saw as he was getting into his car. Geoffrey takes a sharp breath. He's not going to admit to anything over the phone. She might be recording him. It can't be me. I wasn't there. But Monica doesn't listen. Thing is, he knows you. He keeps asking me to go to the press. I don't want to do that, Mr Archer. I don't want any trouble. He rubs at his forehead again. Why don't I give you some money? You can take a long holiday abroad, and in return you'll tell everyone it wasn't me. I'm going to send someone to meet you tomorrow. He's 45, grey-haired, a little overweight. He'll give you an envelope with the cash, OK? Next morning, he paces nervously as he waits for his friend, Michael Stackpole, to report back. Eventually, Stackpole rings him. Sorry, Geoffrey. She wouldn't take the money. He tries to ring Monica, but she won't answer. Next day, he realises why. Mary sits in the kitchen, sobbing. How could you? She throws a newspaper at him. He looks down at the news of the world. It's running a five-page story under the title, Tory Boss Archer Pays Vice Girl. He has to think fast. <laughs> yeah, really fast. How are you going to spin this one? I paid her off for an MP, a cabinet member. As deputy chairman, it's my job to fix this kind of mess. You're lying! He promises he isn't. I can't tell you his name, but it's true. An hour later, he persuades her to face the waiting press with him. Are you joking? She stands in the garden serving tea and biscuits poses for a photograph holding the tea tray. That is such an iconic image now, isn't it? Stood in front of their country pile. It's been pastiched and spoofed and reproduced so many times. Yes, and copied by politicians who find themselves at the centre of a scandal. How many times can you picture them at the bottom of the garden gate with a mug of tea? Exactly. I would like you to print that my husband is innocent. That night, he holds her close to him. Promises her again he's innocent. This will all blow over. Don't worry. Next day, he gets a call from head office. The Daily Star are going to run a story on him. This time, it's not just that he paid a prostitute to leave the country. This time, the story is that he actually had sex with her. In a seedy hotel at 1.30 in the morning. Oh, God. 
and they've got enough lurid detail to finish him forever. Later that morning, the Conservative Party Chairman's office, Westminster. Geoffrey sits across a wide oak desk. He's watching Party Chairman Norman Tebbit read the Daily Star article. The headline reads, Vice Girl Monica talks about Archer, the man she knew. He has to convince Tebbit it's all lies. But the details in the article are damning and humiliating. The star claims that most of Monica's clients demand a specialised field of sexual perversion. They've quoted Monica's nephew. One of them wants to be dressed up like Little Red Riding Hood with suspenders. He wants to be trussed up. Then Monica had to whip him. Geoffrey watches Tebbit raise his eyebrows. You can't believe this, Mac Norman. You know what the press is like. Tebbit raises a finger. Geoffrey ignores him. OK, I was silly. I let myself fall into a trap set by the newspapers. But I have never met this woman. I have never been with a prostitute. And I have never dressed up as Red Riding Hood. Imagine having to put that claim on the record. Yes, I've never dressed up as one of the Seven Dwarves, or Aladdin, or that damn-talking clock from Beauty and the Beast. Tebbit reads on. Eventually, he folds the newspaper, takes off his glasses, scratches his long, thin forehead. My job isn't to say whether it's true or not, Geoffrey. My job is to protect the party. I'm sorry, this is too damaging. Geoffrey slumps back. Would it make any difference if it was Gretel from Hansel and Gretel? Gazes out of the window for a few seconds. He suddenly feels exhausted. He gets up. Promises Tebbit he'll have his written resignation by the close of the day. He walks the short distance across Westminster Bridge to his flat, pushes through the huddle of press. Can you give us a comment, Mr Archer? Is it true you like to be whipped by a big bad wolf? He pours himself a drink, then another, sinks into his white leather sofa. That's the most perverted detail of this whole thing, a white leather sofa, not okay. Imagine if Tebbit finds out about that. You're sick, man. Front page. His political career is in tatters. His marriage is in tatters. But a few seconds later, he sits bolt upright, snatches up the phone. He dials his lawyer, Victor Mishkon, tells him to get over here for an emergency meeting. He's going to fight this. He's not losing his political career over some cool girl. I want to sue the star and the news of the world for libel. Oh boy, buckle in. Three months later, 7.30am, Central London. Geoffrey paces up and down his office. He's waiting for his secretary, Angie Pepiat. He's asked her to come in early today. He's been organising paperwork for his libel trial. He needs her to help him. A few minutes later, Pepiat rushes in. She's in her 30s with neatly cut blonde hair. She's wearing a navy suit and a silk scarf. He watches her take keys from her handbag, unlock her desk drawer take out his diary. A couple of weeks ago, he received court papers for the trial. But because he was with Monica at one in the morning, the Star's legal team cited two dates, the 8th of September and the 9th. He's managed to get alibis for both. Whichever date is called now, he's covered. But he needs Pepiat to write both his alibis in a new diary. That sounds legit. Her handwriting will make it look authentic if anyone checks. I think if you're Geoffrey Archer at this point, you can absolutely justify this to yourself. I think if you're Geoffrey Archer, you can justify a lot of stuff to yourself. So now he shoves an almost identical diary across her desk. I need you to transfer these dates. He hands her a sheet of paper, watches her scan down the page. She squirms, looks up at him. Can't somebody else do it? He'd expected her to say this. He leans in close. The trouble is, Angie, I've asked you now, 
And that means if it leaks that I'm falsifying alibis, I'll know where it came from. Oh, God, shudder. He watches her hand fly to her throat. Of course, Mr Archer, I understand. Her hands shake as she opens the blank diary. He watches her copy out the entries. She hands it back to him. He smiles at her. Why don't you go out today and do some shopping? Put it on the company account. I won't need you again. Oh, this is horrible. When she's gone, he tapes the empty pages together. That way, if he's asked to show the diary in court, they won't see most of it is blank. He pours himself a whiskey, stares at the diary on the coffee table in front of him. He's got a brilliant legal team. He's got his alibis lined up. And now he's got the forged diary. But this is still the biggest gamble of his life. Because if the court finds out he's lying to them, it won't just be his reputation at stake, or even his marriage. It'll be his freedom. Hello, Prime members. You can listen to British Scandal ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This is the first episode in our series, Lord of the Lies. A quick note about our dialogue. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, but all our dramatisations are based on historical research. If you'd like to know more about this story, you can read Geoffrey Archer, Stranger Than Fiction by Michael Crick and In For A Penny by Jonathan Mantle. I'm Alice Levine. And I'm Matt Ford. Karen Laws wrote this episode. Additional writing by Alice Levine and Matt Ford. Our sound design is by Rich Evans. Script editing by James Magniac. Our associate producer is Francesca Gilardi Quadrio Corsio. Our senior producer is Joe Sykes. Our executive producers are Jenny Beckman, Stephanie Jens, and Marshall Louie for Wondering. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.